Welcome to the Wildflower Bee Farm Podcast. I'm Hank Speck. This podcast is about helping you uh, learn and understand the different trials and tribulations of converting a 50-acre farm back to nature and a honeybee sanctuary, and how we struggle to continue to be servant beekeepers. Here's this week's episode. This is this is Hank for the Wildflower Bee Farm. I got a bit of a thing going on, and I may have to stop now and then to sneeze or cough. Um, I'm in the second last day of this. I think it's a COVID thing. Uh, and here they say after seven days, you don't even test, you're just back to normal. So, And now apparently the science says you're only contagious for the first three or four days. So we're following the provincial guidelines here and all locked up tight. And I still have a bit of a hack and the voice has changed. But other than that, I have 100% energy. So today we're going to talk about opening your hives in the fall. So as you probably know, not only do I watch my bees every day on the video cam and walk the farm and so on, I also um, listen and watch a lot of podcasts to find out what beekeepers are doing around the world. And with servant beekeeping, we try to be open-minded and watch all and learn from all types of beekeeping. We don't just, you know, and I talked about that last time, we don't just look at one area, even though we're treatment-free and we don't feed our bees and all that other stuff. But I want to talk about two things that I think are really important. The first is having to do with the fall. And the second is sort of a common sense thing. And I don't know why beekeepers don't do it. And maybe you can help me understand. So one thing I've noticed on pretty much all of the podcasts I've looked at, the video podcasts, is that beekeepers are opening their hives and doing different things. Some of them are cracking them open just to look. And that happens quite a bit. You know, do an inspection, they call it. Uh, some are doing it because they have to change the boxes. So let's say they've kept, uh, uh, and these are climates that I'm talking about climates consistent with ours here in Canada. So they're they're going to enter a winter cluster, the bees. They're going to huddle up to stay warm and survive. So they're entering <clears throat> their boxes to look at moving the boxes around because they may have left an extra honey box on top to collect um Goldenrod honey, many folks are just putting in feed boxes to feed their bees sugar. Yeah. Um, so all I want to do today, though, is address the issue of what happens when we open up a hive this time of the year. Now, if you've ever done it, and, and I've done it a few times, I did it quite a bit when I started because I didn't know any better, and it was the procedure I was following to inspect. Although... Even then, I wondered, well, if I'm inspecting and find something, what am I supposed to do this time of the year? Like, there's not a lot of tools you have, even with uh, traditional livestock beekeeping. Anyway, if you open a hive now, you'll notice that the top cover is cemented down. So throughout the year, since the last time you opened that hive, the bees have been busy using propolis to seal incredibly seal any cracks for insulation purposes, for protection. And they've also probably put propolis below and above cracks. So you have this sort of a web of solid cement protecting that lid. Now, the reason the lid is so important is we know that about 75 to 80% of heat loss happens up through the ceiling. Let's think about that. 75 to 80% through the ceiling. Now, you notice if you looked at my old videos, we've gone to wool, raw wool, in our moisture blankets inside the hives. 
and I can tell you from the monitoring we're doing, um, so far it's been incredible as far as maintaining temperature consistency as well as humidity. So I think we're going to be okay with this choice. Now, I don't know how the bees feel about the smell of untreated sheep wool, but I don't think anybody's absconded from, you know, the odor. I could be wrong. Um, okay, so let's say you go in and you crack the hive and we're now into October, mid-October. You've broken the seal. So, you know, you, you muck around, you do what you have to do, and then you put the lid back on. <clears throat> well, what are the bees going to do? I mean, how are they going to reseal that lid? What are they going to do? Well, where are they going to find propolis? They're not going to go out and get it anywhere in the bush or in the trees. And this time of the year, the sap that they need isn't going to be available because the trees are drying up. But we do know that bees can move propolis around inside a hive if the temperature allows it. But it, it, as the temperature drops, it becomes really hard and cement-like. So the amount of energy needed from the bees in the hive to fix your problem are huge. I'm not sure they ever do because if you've ever done it, and then you've made the mistake to go in again two or three weeks later. You'll notice there's hardly any seal because they can't, they just, they just can't do it. Now, remember too, when you crack the hive, the, I don't know what word we want to use, but the balance of what's in the air is gone in the atmosphere of the hive. So the hive atmosphere is sort of a blend of the smells and the fibers and the, and the, business of what's going on, the pheromones, all of that, it gets just fluffed away. It's almost like we've, you know, done an antiseptic on the entire hive with regard to the atmosphere. And that again increases stress. And we know when stress is increased in a living thing or being, bad things generally happen. On the one hand, you could say a good thing happens because they fight to survive. But in this case, there isn't that type of response they can do because stinging you isn't going to stop it from happening. So they really don't have a response. So, you know, a couple questions. Why do we open our hives this time of the year? I, I, I couldn't really find a good reason other than to drop in some food, some uh, sugar material. Or to just look and see how they're doing. Well, again, uh, before you look, ask yourself, if I find something, you know, in, um, in therapy, I'll pull some psychology in here. You generally don't ask a question unless you're prepared for the answer. So if you're going to go into a hive and there's a question, like maybe the queen didn't survive. So what are you going to do? Is there any science behind combining hives this time of the year? I highly doubt it. I highly doubt you'll probably ruin both hives. So if you're watching our videos, you know in the past we've been doing in July, I went in and did some late season splits. And they were still flying the other day, bringing in pollen and nectar. So we're talking July, August, September, and now we're into October. We're getting into our fourth month post-split. So I'll be interested to see if any of them survive the spring. So back to my question, <clears throat> why do we open hives in the fall? I, I suggest we don't. 
I mean, I'm itching to find out how my splits are doing, but <clears throat> if I open them, I'm going to contribute to their demise, and that's not going to be a very good thing, and I'm going to be responsible. So what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to get my infrared camera out, my, my, my camera that will go in, and it'll, it'll take a pick, and I can look at the heat sensing camera and see what's happening. We're also going to get some days where the temperature is going to be above 10. And our bees, like the Saskatras, were flying at 6 or 7 last year. And I think these, Celsius, and I think these bees, you know, once you hit above 10, most bees will go out and do things. And we can, we can generally see, we haven't had a frost yet on the farm, so we still have uh, flowers. We, believe it or not, have nectar and some pollen. So it's going to be a very late fall to keep track. So I would recommend you really jack up your observation skills. That's what I'm going to do. And avoid opening your hives at any cost. So that's my little spiel on fall winter. Generally, there's not much to do. And the, the other point, though, I want to bring up, and this is one that I don't, well, I understand logistically why beekeepers do this. But let me just get a drink of water and talk about the next thing. So Dr. Seeley, incredible uh, researcher from Cornell University, Ithaca, New York, if you remember, he did the studies where he found bees, feral bees or wild bees that survive Varroa by adapting on their own. He's also done a really great practical studies. He's a field researcher, observational scientist, I, I call him, even though I'm, I've never talked to him and I'm sure he doesn't appreciate that, but I think he's an observational scientist, provides incredible information that we can use in the real world. So the stuff he does, you can look at it, read it, and say, you know what, that makes sense. Maybe I should try it my bee, with my bees uh, on the farm. He reminds me a little bit, and I, I just finished reading uh, Charles Darwin, Origin of the Species, although Charles Darwin's uh, book was very interesting. Um, but Seeley has a very uh, research application approach. So what Seeley noticed is in the wild, when he looked at the feral bees, the hives were well spread apart. In his case, I believe they're well over a kilometer or a mile. And it may have more to do with the food availability than the need to survive. But think for a minute. Seeley discovered and other researchers that there's a great deal of bee drift when bees are located side by side in an apiary. So you've got, say, 10 hives together and the hives are almost touching, or they could even be touching. The bees go out and get honey, or they get nectar. Sorry, they don't get honey. They get Blame it on the, the cold. They go out and get nectar or pollen, and they bring it back to the hive. And some scientists say from 15 to 20% of the bees will, will drift. They'll go to another hive. We also, now, sometimes they'll, they'll bribe, there'll be bribes at the door, we call it, so that the bees will still let them come in of that hive and share their goods and leave again. Some won't, but some will. Um, we also know that drones get a free pass anywhere in the world. So if you're a drone and you go out and you um, go to the drone congregation area and the you just don't make it to the queen and you're running out of gas and juice, so you have to go back and re-energize with food because you're flying up in the sky for like 25 minutes and can't get a date if you will so you fly back uh, 
to the hive, but you go to a different hive. Now, the deal is any hive will accept you for some reason. They'll feed you. They'll take care of you till you get jacked up, and then they won't hurt you. They don't, you know, they don't mess with you, and then you go back out, and you go back up to the queen congregation area. Now, it's going to happen... We don't know the drone levels, but if the workers, it's 15% plus, we know it probably happens more so for drones because they seem to kind of bumble and stumble their way through life, particularly if there's no consequence. At times, worker bees will be punished if they go to the wrong hive, um, but not in the case of drones. So what Seeley figured out is, I wonder, and it makes sense, that if hives are put farther apart, Bees are le less likely to drift. So that's one thing. So he did this study where he had a bunch of hives. He put a group of them together in an apiary and another group that he split apart by, I think it was some 100 feet. And he didn't treat them or anything. He just spread some apart and some put together like a traditional apiary. So he didn't treat them. The survival rate after the first winter, I believe, was 30-some percent for the um, bunched-up hives. 85% for the hives that were spread apart with no other uh, change in anything. Same, you know, same strain of bees, same process, everything. And then there's a second thing that seems to happen is that when bees are spread apart, let's say there's a weak hive in the 10, um, a very weak hive. Well, this time of the year or late September, the bees may, or during a dearth where there's no other uh, nectar or pollen out there, the bees may actually rob that weak hive, take it over, take all the resources, and take it home. According to Seeley, the chances of that happening are greater if hives are put together. If hives are all... Now, I understand the reason, because we have some 50 hives on the farm spread out all over 50 acres. Now, some of them are kind of close, within 20 feet, whatever. Um, but generally speaking, there's a lot of movement to go to go get the hives. It's not like you just walk down into one nice lawn, grass cut area and you've got your 50 hives. They're everywhere, spread out over the property. It's not very easy. And, and also some of them are, um, I think I told you that some of the hives we have are way out into the forest where there's a clearing, one in particular because they're very aggressive. Well, they were when we moved them. So to get to that hive, I actually t had to take a weed eater and cut a path through the forest because this is an area where the green ash had died and there was a great deal of vegetation and was able to go and you know have a look at the hive once twice a year it gets opened uh, once in the spring to do splits uh, and at the same time we add a honey box and then again when we collect the honey for the family if it's that high we we've been using the aggressive hive for two years now it's going into its third winter untreated we'll see what happens with it but my point is, if you have all these hives spread out over a large property, <clears throat> it's a lot more work. And two, you have to have a lot of property to do that. You can't just put, you know, if you've got a backyard or an acre, it's pretty hard to put, you know, spread out your 50. But the best you can, it seems to help your hive survive. So my question is, why is that not a standard practice if we know it helps bees? Regardless if it's, could there not be a commercial way, um, commercial beekeepers, livestock beekeepers could do this? Or would it be too inefficient? Not sure, but I throw it out there. Maybe it's a bit like organic farmers who talk about cows walking out into the 
pastures or pigs living in grass and not being confined in a barn. It's, it's, it's not very efficient. Costs a lot of money to have that extra land and so on. I'm not sure, but I think when it comes to healthy bees and uh, treatment outcome, Sealy's come up with a pretty genius, simple way to have a look at it. So we do that on the farm. That's another another thing that we do do. But I ask you, if you're a beekeeper, please uh, send me back a comment or two why you do or don't do that. And if not, maybe you should start. This is Hank for the Wildflower Bee Farm. You have an amazing week, and we'll talk again next time. To learn more about how honeybees can help you in your investing and personal life, go to investlikeahoneybee.com. There you'll learn how listening to the honeybees helped us in so many ways and can help you. Investlikeahoneybee.com